Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'll just say thank you to those that are joining us online. I know that uh, my wife and son and newborn daughter are tuning in online and we love you and miss you here. And those that others might be tuning in online on Facebook or um, on our website, um, we're very excited to welcome our daughter, Jesse, into the world on Tuesday at about 327. And so they're not with us tonight, uh, just got home at about 3.30 this afternoon. And so uh, just a little bit different service tonight. Started with prayer and we're just having a Bible study tonight. But I do thank you for joining us online and I pray that the message will be a blessing to you. So Galatians chapter 6, or Galatians chapter 1, sorry, there's not 6. And there is 6, but no, Galatians chapter 1. And uh, we're in this series on living life in the liberty of Christ. We looked uh, last week at the source of your belief system and that the, the only credible source of a reliable source of a credible belief system is God. And so we need to make sure that what we believe comes from God and not from the mind of man. And I mentioned in talking with Hannah this morning that about the message that a lot of chapter one is, uh, is all kind of building the same case going into chapter two that emphasizes the, the source of the true gospel and that there is only one true gospel and where that true gospel comes from. And so it can be a challenge to make sure that you're, uh, you're not just preaching the same message every week, but there are just specific, I and mean, we could preach all of chapter one in one message, but I believe we'd miss out on some very strong nuggets of truth if we did that. And so um, we are just breaking this down little by little and some, it allows for some overlap between messages that helps build some continuity as we go through the study together though. So I'm thankful for that. But Galatians chapter one, and tonight we'll be covering verses six through verse 10. So the apostle Paul writes and says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? Now watch this. For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Jesus Christ. And so as we get into this portion of our study, the title of our message tonight is Waging War on Twisted Truth. Uh, within every realm of society, within nearly every realm of life, there's some semblance of rivalry. Of course, we understand uh, sports rivalries. You know, I'm thinking here in the Denver metro area of Broncos Raiders, is a strong rivalry or maybe CU versus CSU locally here in Boulder, uh, but also the Avalanche Red Wings. That was always a big time rivalry, especially as I was growing up as a kid. But 
Aside from the sports world, really in other areas of our lives, there are rivalries as well. You can have rivalry within a classroom that you've got a battle between who's going to be salutatorian and who's going to be valedictorian, whether in high school or in, in college. And so there can be a rivalry there as to who's going to get the best grade. And they work hard. There might be rivalry in the workplace that people are trying to climb that corporate ladder. And so you've got a position in corporate that's available and you've got this guy going for it and you've got this guy going for it. And so they are trying to do their best to fend each other off. But it might be that in the interview process, they might say some negative things about the other person to try to get ahead. And so that can create a rivalry or competitions in sales in the workforce that can create competition and rivalry as well. But this even goes to your home, sibling rivalries, right? You got, as you got young kids, it's who's going to be ping pong every now and then, or a lot of our nights right now. And even when we were in the hospital, we we're uh, playing a board game on an app, you know, and we're, we're competitive there. And she lets me win on occasion just to make me feel better. And so you can have even a rivalry there at home. But when I think of a good rivalry, what I really think of is the, that Avalanche versus Red Wing rivalry back in the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, they were knocked down, drag out brawls. I mean, the entire team and the goalies coming to center ice and just going after each other. And there's blood all over the ice. I mean, those were big time rivalries. They were big time enemies. Rivalries, when you think about it, they can occur in the same building in the same home, in the same stadium, on the same turf. But those rivalries are born out of extreme differences or different jersey colors when it comes to sports. And so what I'm trying to say is in the very same venue, you can have groups of individuals that pair up together as teams. And under the same venue, you can have enemies, arch rivals, Arch nemesises, sees, however you would say that. And so the reason why I bring that up is because there's a permeating belief within Christianity that says there should be no rivalry. There should be no animosity between differing denominations, interpretations, and belief systems. It's the idea that the gospel is all that matters. Okay, there's a big movement within Christianity that all that matters is the gospel, and as long as you're preaching the gospel, what you believe doctrinally doesn't matter. It can be thrown out the window, and so we should all just come together, and we should put Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Catholics and, and Baptists and Southern Baptists and, and, and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that we all believe in the same Jesus. We all believe the same gospel. So instead of there being this rivalry, instead of there being this division, we really all need to just come together, put our differences aside just to focus on the gospel. That sounds good. After all, Jesus taught on unity. After all, the epistles are filled with unity and the idea that we need to be united and not divided. But the problem with preaching an all-inclusive Christian message 
And by that, I mean, it doesn't matter how you interpret the Bible or what you believe doctrinally, you can be included in this group together. Here is the problem with that, is that the differences between the different denominations are there because of the impact on the message of the gospel. It's not like we just formed all these different denominations because uh, people had personality conflicts. No, there are fundamental beliefs about the scripture that are very different from one another. And so it's impossible to live in harmony if you're going to take a stand on biblical doctrine. It's impossible to do that. Some take away the free will of man. Some say that God picks and chooses who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell based on his own desires apart from man's choice or belief at all. That a person could completely come and want to believe in Christ and yet because God did not elect them to be saved, they have no other option than to go to hell. There are some that, that preach that and believe that. They wouldn't be so foolish as to say it that way, but nonetheless, that's what they believe. Some take away eternal security. That you have to work your way into maintaining your salvation. There are some that diminish the grace of Christ by demanding that works are essential to be saved. There are some that minimize faith in Christ for salvation. That it really doesn't matter that all paths lead to God. And so regardless of whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to find yourself in heaven. Well, those are fundamental differences in the gospel. Some of them are polar opposites. Some believe that baptism can save you or that baptism can save a baby or add a special grace to that baby's life. And yet in spite of these vitally important differences related to the gospel, there is still an overwhelming cry for more tolerance, for less division and less uh, contention when it comes to matters of truth. Even after Last week's uh, uh, message had a conversation that that, you know, maybe if we don't come out and call out different belief systems, call out different denominations, call out people that are preaching error, then we might be able to grow our church a little bit better, that, that we might not have as much resistance, that we might have more people that are interested in coming because we're able to reach a broader pool of believers who believe in different doctrines. And so that conversation has come up. And that's because we live in a seemingly or professingly tolerant society, but it just re really depends on what you want to tolerate and what you don't want to tolerate. But because we live in that tolerant society, that's bred its way into Christianity. But what I want to say and we'll show you tonight is that the Apostle Paul would take great issue with that sentiment today. Because most of the letters of the New Testament and most of the things that he wrote were specifically written to contend with false teachers and to combat their false teaching. That's what most of the epistles are about. Basically, everything outside of the pastoral epistles are written to combat false doctrine. And so the Apostle Paul 
had come through the region of Galatia and he had preached this message. And I'm going to just refer to it this way throughout this study, but he had preached the message that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, apart from any works of the law. And so that's what he preached to them. And these Galatian believers were saved. But these false teachers had come to Galatia and they began to question Paul's gospel. They questioned his credentials. They questioned his motives. And what they began to do was to teach the false gospel that that added Jewish nationalism as well as the keeping of the law. If they were going to be saved, if they were going to have acceptance with God. And here's what happens is that when they added things to Christ in an effort to be closer to God, we're going to find that they were actually distancing themselves from God. And so as we read this, we see that Paul comes in and he just flat out is contentious with them. (laughs) He doesn't back down. He's not tolerant. He's not just going to allow this gospel to make its way into their church. No, he's got to deal with it. Well, why does Paul and why should we continue this day, even in the day in which we live, why should we continue to contend for the fundamental truths of the faith and specifically relating to the gospel? Why should we, why should we contest false teachers as well as their false teaching in a day that preaches tolerance? And so that's what we want to consider tonight. Paul was astonished that the Galatian believers were so quickly removed from the true gospel. In verse 6, he says, I marvel, I'm astounded. This this blows my mind, uh, the fact that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. I mean, this so soon there, again, when Paul went to Galatia, that was on his very first missionary journey. And that's really as far as he made it was to the region of Galatia there. And then he headed back to Antioch and, and goes down to Jerusalem for the council, dealing with the specific issue that they're dealing with. The fact that the Gentiles did not need to be compelled to be circumcised. They did not need to be compelled to keep the works of the law, only to keep themselves from things offered to idols and to abstain from fornication. Those are the only two things that, that, they, were, that they decided at the Jerusalem council by the discernment of the Holy Ghost, that this is what the Gentiles should be held to do. But they're free from the works of the law. Well, as soon as they had that council in Jerusalem, he begins to head back north to Antioch and catches wind about this false doctrine creeping into their church. And so this is very fresh in his mind. It's burning in his heart. And he says, already, I mean, so soon are ye removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ? Now, the word removed there, it's a, it's a two-part word. The first is the word meta, which means to change. Uh, you think of metamorphosis, and so it's talking about change. And then the other word is the word that means to rest. It means to settle. It means to stand. It has to do with your position, your stance. And so what he's saying here is, I marvel that you are so soon changed in your position. That's what he's talking about. There's been a change in in your position. And this word removed is written in the middle voice. And so the middle voice means that they had done this to themselves. It wasn't the false teachers that took them from one place to another place and changed their position, changed their stances. No, it's something they allowed to happen 
to themselves. He says, I'm astounded by this. That happened so quickly that you went from one place to another, from one position to another, that you have changed your position on the gospel. Well, where exactly had they been? Well, he says that they had been removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. And so what Paul is, is reminding them of is you have a God who brought the gospel your way and through the message of the gospel called you into his grace. He said, I am offering grace to you, a salvation that can't be merited on your own, a salvation that can't be had and possessed because of the works of the law, but solely by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he says, you've been called to this position of grace. And very quickly, you have allowed yourself by means of these false teachers to be removed from the place of grace and to be taken back into a place of bondage is what he's going to describe. That you've changed positions here and it's happened so quickly. Well, what had they changed positions to? It says there in verse six, unto another gospel. And so they had gone to another gospel. This word another is the word heteros which makes you initially think of heterosexuality, okay? What does that mean? That is, would be a relationship between a man and a woman. Now, while a man and a woman are under the realm of humankind, they're not the same as each other. There are biological fundamental differences between a man and a woman. And so they're different. And so that's the word heteros. So he says that you've been called uh, or you've, you've been removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. A gospel that seemingly appears the same, but is fundamentally and biologically different. It's not the same. But what I want to point out to you before we move on here is that he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you. See, and so it, here's what it was, was that as they're over here in the grace of Christ, the, the Jewish teachers come in and they start saying, you're not as close to God as you could be. You're not as accepted with God as you could be. And so you need to be circumcised and you need to become a Jew and you need to keep the works of the law and then you can be closer to God and you can be more accepted with God. But what Paul says is in the process of making this fundamental biological shift in messages in an effort to get closer to God, you've actually been removed farther away from God. Amen. You're not any closer to him because of what you've done. In fact, if anything, there's more distance between you and God right now. Why? because they're standing in the position of a different gospel. I love how he says this, that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, a biologically different gospel, which is not another. Now this word another is the word alos, which means another of the same kind. So he's saying that this gospel that you're believing is fundamentally different naturally different, biologically different. Its makeup is completely different. And then just for the sake of emphasis, he says, which is not the same as this one. <laughs> it's not the same. They are completely uh, different from each other. This word is used when Jesus says that when he goes away, he would send them another comforter. Well, who's the comforter? 
the Holy Ghost. In other words, Jesus Christ, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost, God the Spirit, are one in the same. That they may make up different persons, but they are very similar or the same person in one. That's the word that he used, another comforter. And so that's talking about how he's saying this gospel that you've gone to is completely different. It's not the same at all as the one that you originally received. And so he, he's marveling at this. When they forsook the truth, they were actually forsaking the source of truth, the one who had called them. And so what's going on here is that these false teachers are wreaking havoc in their church. How are they doing that? He says in verse seven, but there be some that trouble you. That word trouble, it means to agitate, to, uh, to shake things up. It means to uh, distress with doubt, to throw into confusion, to create commotion. He's saying that there are some individuals who have come into your church and what they've actually done is they've stirred things up. They've created commotion in your life. They've thrown your, your spiritual understanding into confusion and now it's creating distress. It's creating doubt and more confusion in your life. They, they have troubled you. And not only them personally, but this false teaching was no doubt creating turmoil and division within their church. Because I don't know that every single person in the churches of Galatia had changed positions. It's very likely that there were some who remained in the same position and were faithful to it. And so no doubt this created division. And so you've got these false teachers that what they're doing is they are troubling the church. But Paul's primary concern goes beyond just the trouble that it brought to the church. He's concerned with this. They had tampered with the truth. It says that, and would pervert the gospel. The word pervert there, it means to, uh, to turn around. It means to change direction. That when they, were, uh, when they had been uh, receiving Paul's gospel, they were going this way, and these false teachers took that message of the gospel, and they turned it around. They shifted it. It completely changed course, changed direction, so much so that it fundamentally became a different gospel altogether than the one that Paul had preached. And so he says that they had perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, how had they done that? Well, they altered it. How had they altered it? By mixing Moses with Christ. That they sought to, uh, to tell them that if you want to be accepted with God, and again, I'm going to refer to this throughout this study, that yes, you need Christ. You need Christ to be forgiven. He initiates your acceptance with God, but the works of the law finish it. And so that's what they are, are teaching them. But what happens here is that mixing the gospel with Moses served not to enhance the gospel, but to pervert it entirely. John Stott said this, you cannot modify or supplement the gospel without radically changing its character. And you can tell through Paul's writing here that that's exactly what had happened. The false teaching had troubled the church and it had tampered with the truth. The false teaching at Galatia had severely tampered with the truth and they had severely brought trouble into the church. And so what was Paul going to do about it? How did he deal with it? 
Well, Paul contests with the false teachers who had led them away from the true gospel. Look at verse 8. It says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And so Paul comes out and he's, he, he, he's not skirting around the issues. He's taking it head on. And here's what he's saying. Even if I, if I, the Apostle Paul, were to come back into your churches and I preached a gospel that was different than the one that was uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, if I come preaching any other gospel than that, let me be accursed. That word accursed, um, it, it's the New Testament word for the Old Testament word that refers to Jericho. When they went in to conquer Jericho, the, all the spoil was accursed. What was it? It was consecrated to God for destruction. And so here's what he's saying is if I come into your church and I start preaching a different message of the gospel, let me be destroyed of God. <laughs> That's literally what he's saying there. Because you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and it talks about how if you add to the word of God or you take away from the word of God, let him be accursed. You go to the book of Revelation. And so from, from the very beginning to the very ending, if you add to the word of God or you take away from the word of God, then you're accursed. The curses of the book of Revelation should rest on the head of those who would change the truth. And that's what he's saying here. And he says, by the way, he says, but though we, not just me, if Luke comes to you and preaches another gospel, if Titus comes to you and preaches another gospel, if Timothy comes back to you and preaches another gospel, one of your own there out of Lystra and Derby, if he comes and preaches you to another gospel, or if Barnabas comes back to you, if any of us come and preach another gospel, and there's the word for a different kind of gospel than what we originally preached unto you, let us be a destroyed of God. But then he goes and says, or an angel from heaven. <laughs> That'd be quite a miracle, wouldn't it? Yeah. If an angel descended right now through the ceiling here and came and said, I have a message from God. Boy, that might well, it'd weird us out at first, but it would perk up your ears and make you want to give heed. But the Apostle Paul, here's what he's saying. I am so confident that the gospel I first delivered unto you is the true gospel that I'm so confident in that truth that even if an angel came down from heaven, let him be destroyed of God. And then I love this. Just in case you didn't get it, verse 9. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received what you have already received in the past from me. If anyone, period, comes in and preaches a different kind of gospel, let him be accursed. And so what this is really communicating is that Paul was extremely confident that this gospel was the true gospel. And so what that did, that confidence led him to vigilantly contend for the truth of the gospel. He didn't sit by idly. He couldn't let this go on. Why? Because he knew without a doubt this gospel was wrong and this one was right. And this one only serves to take you further away from God when God already called you to himself in this gospel. And then look at what Paul does in verse number 10. He says, for do I now persuade men? That word persuade, it means to, 
to be winsome. It means to win somebody over. It means to be pleasing to somebody. And so he says, for do I now persuade men or God? Which am I concerned with? Uh, winning people over to my position or with what God wants me to communicate? Uh, he says, or do I seek to please men? Uh, and so he's drawing their attention. And the reason why he's drawing their attention to this is because he apparently had been confused or confused. He had apparently been accused of being a man pleaser with the gospel message. Why else would he bring this up? No, they had accused him of this. They had twisted his words to make them think that Paul, uh, when Paul was around the Jews, he acted like a Jew. And when Paul was around the Gentiles, he acted like a Gentile. They might have even used the terms that Paul used, that, that when I was a Jew, I became as the Jews. When I was a Gentile, I became as a Gentile. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul said that himself. Well, they twisted his words to say, see, all Paul's concerned about is what's convenient for him. He's just concerned that he's going to join up with whoever is going to follow him. He's going to, he's going to do whatever is the simplest for him, whatever's easiest, whatever is the most convenient. But here's what the Apostle Paul said. For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. That when you live your life, when you live your ministry to please men, you do not serve the purposes of Jesus Christ. You serve the purposes of yourself. That's what he's saying that happens there if you're seeking to please men. So what's really going on is their gospel was the one that was guilty of pleasing men. Well, how do you know that? Consider Galatia, this region that Paul went to preach in. He faced heavy persecution there. He was run out from town to town to town until he eventually came to, I believe it was Lystra, where he was stoned and left for dead outside the city. And so he had personally been persecuted. Why had he been persecuted? Well, let me start with who had persecuted him. It was the Jews. And so you have, why are the Jews persecuting him? Because he had come into their region and their synagogues and he preached this message that you don't need to keep the works of the law anymore to be accepted with God. You find acceptance with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And he specifically mentions again there in Acts 13 that it has nothing to do with the works of the law. It is the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, that means that the Jews there were losing power. They were losing control of the people. And then also they did believe that the works of the law is what furnished your salvation with God or at least your acceptance with God. And so they were, this was threatening their way of life. And so they go in and they, they, start, uh, they start persecuting Paul and running him out of town. And then they stone him and leave him for dead. I don't know about you, but Paul's message was not very convenient for him. But you know what would be convenient? If say, yes, you need Jesus Christ, but you also need to keep the works of the law. Because that's something maybe the Jews could get on board with. Because that means that these new Christian converts, that though they may not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, these Christian converts are still going to bring their money to the synagogue. They're still going to bring their sacrifices to the synagogue. They're still going to keep the dietary laws. They're still going to be circumcised to become Jewish proselytes. And so uh, what, what, this, what Paul is really getting at here, what he's going to get at through the rest of the book, is the way that, that to keep the Jewish law put them in a better standing with the Jews in the city. 
So which was more convenient? To keep the works of the law, to mix Moses with Christ, or to say Christ alone without the law? See, that's Paul's argument here. No, my gospel was not rooted in convenience. And he's going to talk about how he was persecuted. It wasn't rooted in convenience. In fact, theirs was rooted in inconvenience or inconvenience. And so Paul taught them really this, that with the, when the aim of your message is to please people, it results in a perverted gospel. That when you try to tailor the message of the gospel to please the people, you end up perverting the gospel. That's what he's saying there. And when you pervert the gospel in an effort to please people, you are not the servant of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing here is he is taking on these false teachers and their false teaching head first. He's not tolerating it. He's not saying, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just come together? I know you believe a little bit different, but it's not that bad. You do still believe in Jesus Christ. I just believe that you don't have to keep the works of the law. So let's just get together in fellowship. That's not what he's doing here. He's telling them, no, if you preach any other gospel, let you be destroyed of God. And, and if you're going to uh, come in and you're going to change the message of the gospel in order to appeal to people, you're not the servant of Christ. And so he's coming right at them. Well, why did he feel the need to come after these false teachers? Why is that? Well, I think it's clear from the text here that he contended with these false teachers because they were troubling the church and they were tampering with truth. They troubled the church and they tampered with truth. There are still also teachers today who are tampering with the truth. There are those who preach a works-based salvation. Those who preach that in the end of time, you're going to come before heaven, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and there's going to be this great big scale and, and Christ is going to weigh your good works versus your bad works. And if your good works outweigh your bad works, then you're going to heaven. Congratulations. But if your bad works outweigh your good works, then you're going to hell. And so they preach this gospel and that's not the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul is combating here. There are those who preach that baptism saves you. There are still Messianic Jewish fellowships here. There's actually one just about 10 minutes down the road from here in Gun Barrel that still teach that, yes, you do need Christ and Christ does initiate your acceptance with God, but keeping the law finishes it. There are still Judaizers to this day right here in the United States of America. There are those who tamper with the authority of Scripture. And so what they say is that, well, look, we found these older manuscripts. And so because these are older manuscripts, they're closer to the time of the actual writing of Scripture. So they must be the true ones. But there's a significant difference between the older ones and the newer ones. And so th there's this, uh, this textual criticism here that says we should use the older. Well, can I just say this? If I were to write a copy today of the Word of God and it was filled with punctuation errors and spelling errors and even some word errors. But then we, we find one 
That was, or, or, but then my wife, let me put it this way. But then let's say my wife makes a copy 30 years from now and hers is flawless because her handwriting is much better and mine is much sloppier. Well, listen, just because mine was older doesn't mean that it's better than what's newer. That's not what it means. But that's the argument is because these texts are older, they must be truer. And so what's come out of that is all the plethora of different versions. And, and many of those versions have omitted verses. And so and what all this is about is to cast doubt on the truth of Scripture, on, on the authority and whether or not we can truly believe that we have the word of God with us. That's that's tampering with truth. There are those, uh, of course, we have talked extensively about Calvinistic teaching on salvation and the fact that some believe that God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. And that's rooted alone in scriptures that are taken well out of context in order to support a preconceived notion, but also to feed an intellectual superiority complex as well. But the problem with Calvinistic teaching that God picks who goes to heaven and who goes to hell apart from their response to Christ, that that teaching goes on to trouble people. It troubles people. Why? Because they can't reconcile how a loving God would send somebody to hell based solely upon his desire and his personal choice apart from the free will of man. They can't reconcile that. I can't reconcile a God who wants to save people at the same time wanting to condemn people. I can't reconcile that. And what happens is because that teaching has troubled people, it yields to a different kind of gospel. A gospel like Rob Bell's, whom we have talked about, that in his book, Love wins, and I, I don't intend to beat up on him throughout this entire study, but when you write something as inflammatory as he did back in 2010, 2011, you kind of open yourself up to that. But his book, Love Wins, surmises that because God is a God of love, there's no way he would send anyone to hell. Therefore, in the end, God's going to win everybody over and everyone will go to heaven and nobody will go to hell. That's his premise. Chapter 7's title is this, The Good News is better than that. The good news is better than that. It, it takes a part that if some go to hell and some go to heaven, then, be, then, excuse me, if some go to hell and some go to heaven, then because the gospel isn't good news for everyone, it can't be good news for anyone. And so there has to be a better gospel. That's literally what he writes and asserts in here. Well, in an interview with Martin Bashir on MSNBC years ago, Bashir takes Bell to task on the premise of his book. And in the process of that interview, I watched it this afternoon, that Bell openly admitted that his new take on the gospel was rooted in upbringing in a deeply evangelical home and his personal wrestlings with the idea that a loving God would choose to send people to hell. And as you listen to him talk, and as you, I read many excerpts and quotes from his, from his book today. And as I'm reading through this, here's what you clearly get from his uh, perspective on it, is that he grew up in a Calvinistic home, in a home where literally the teaching is God chooses to send some to hell and chooses to send some to heaven 
and that it is all according to his will apart from the free will of man. You can clearly tell that is what he was brought up in. Well, as he reads the Bible, he struggles to see how a God of love could willingly do that. And so because of that, it leads him. Here's what I'm trying to get at. If I could maybe get there a little quicker this way. The tampering of truth in his childhood troubled his soul, which led to a far greater tampering of the gospel. Getting to the place, it was his refusal to understand or his inability to understand the true gospel that he was raised on that led him rather than trying to gain a deeper understanding of the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of the grace of Christ, what it led him to do was to rewrite the gospel altogether. Well, Martin Brashear nails him to the wall and he says this, it's really funny to watch him squirm, by the way. You can still find that if you YouTube this. But here's what Martin Bashir said. You are creating a Christian message. Did you catch that? You are creating. Well, we looked last week at the source of the gospel. Where does that come from? God. It's not, it's not made up in the minds of man. It's not our place to create a gospel. But he says, you are creating a Christian message that is warm, kind, and popular for a contemporary culture, but is frankly unbiblical. This is coming from an MSNBC anchor. <laughs> you are amending the gospel so that it is palatable for people who find the idea of heaven and hell very difficult to stomach. So he, he kind of snarks and says this. So Rob Bell has come and made a Christian gospel and it's much easier for you to swallow today. Mercy. See, the problem with tampering with the truth is the effect it has on people. Because now there are literally thousands of people that attend his church and adhere to his gospel. And they believe that even if they refuse Christ in this life, in the end, God's going to let them into heaven because he loves them. That's a false gospel. A gospel that's been tampered with. A gospel that puts people in trouble. See, when somebody tampers with your brakes, what does that do? That endangers your life. If they cross wires or if they cut the, the fuel, the brake, brake fluid, that's what I'm looking for. Well, then you're coming down the mountain and your brakes are messed up. That's a danger to your life. Well, the same is true when you tamper with the gospel. It affects people's uh, future destiny. It troubles people like Calvinistic beliefs do. It troubles people uh, with the idea that your salvation is by your own good works. And so am I good enough to maintain my salvation? Or it gets you to the place where you're having to say, uh, Lord, if I'm not saved, save me. Oh, I messed up again. I sinned again. Lord, if I'm not saved again, save me. Or maybe, man, and you come to the end of your life. Can you imagine sitting in a hospital bed with your body riddled with cancer and you're thinking, did I do enough good in my life to be able to make it to heaven? Well, that'll create doubt. That'll create distress in your life. Tampering with truth throws people into confusion, just like it did to Rob Bell, which led him to completely rewrite the gospel. Those who refuse Christ and trust a message like Rob Bell's will be tragically disappointed when they find out that they have to spend eternity in hell, not because God elected them there or sent them there, but because they rejected Jesus Christ when they had the free will to do so. 
See, they refused his only provision of salvation. And when you tamper with the truth of the gospel, that troubles the church. It troubles people's lives. False teachers, you know, have a way of sneaking into the church. And what they're more concerned with is converting Bible-believing Christians than they are with converting lost people to Jesus Christ. And so what I'm trying to get at is this. At Boulder Valley Baptist Church, we can't just be tolerant of all kinds of different gospels and all kinds of different belief systems because what will happen is if we tolerate it and we don't contest them and we don't contend for the true gospel, then these people are going to make their way in and they're going, to, they're going to intercept people's lives just like it happened here in the Galatian churches. And you'll have all kinds of people that have changed positions in an effort to get closer to God, but they find themselves actually at a greater distance from God. And depending on what gospel message they believe, they might not ever get saved as a result. And so we've got to continue to contend with false teaching because it tampers with truth and it troubles the church. We've got to cling to the hope of the true gospel, that there is a real heaven, that there is a real hell, but that Jesus died and that Jesus, through his death alone, it's sufficient to forgive, to cleanse us, to save us, and to equip us to live in a right relationship with God. And so the challenge tonight is very simply this. Don't allow yourself. This is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Don't allow yourself to be troubled by tampered truth. And so that means that we need to check out the authors before we read after them. We need to understand what gospel they're preaching so that we know what bones to spit out and what meat to eat. We need to be careful about church membership and ensure that people are going to adhere to the doctrines that we believe in that, that are found in the clarity of Scripture and make sure that they agree to follow those doctrines. Because if we just let anybody in, What's going to happen is they're going to start going after Bible-believing Christians and start picking them away and leading them astray into these false doctrines. And what that can do is instead of getting you closer to God, instead of keeping you in the place of grace where you ought to be, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about being removed, being distanced from Him that called you into the grace of Christ. And it'll lead to a troubled church a church that ends up split and divided and can't be the light that it needs to be and that Christ called it to be for this community. We've got to contend for the faith or else our church will end up troubled and our truth will end up tampered. Father, we come to you tonight and just thank you for the time in your word. And I'm thankful for an apostle like Paul who earnestly contended for the faith and I'm thankful that you have given us an awareness that there will be false teachers who will come and they will teach things that are pleasing to men. And God, we can't tailor our message to this culture. For if we do so, we will not be the servants of Christ. We'll be the servants of ourselves, our own thinking, creating our own gospels, amending the truth in an effort to please men. And so I pray that you would just help each and every one of us 
to be careful with who we read after, what we study, and to not allow our lives to be troubled or our truth to be tampered by men. And so I pray that you'd help us take this to heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, thank you for coming tonight. Appreciate, the, appreciate your attention and may God bless you. <clears throat>
to read with the sun.